On Thursday, April 13th from 6 to 10 p.m., art car lovers can get a sneak peek of this year's mobile masterpieces at the Art Car Sneak Peek at Discovery Green. This free and family-friendly event in downtown Houston features live music, art activities for kids, food and drinks, and the opportunity to interact with 100-plus art cars and meet the art car artists. So grab a friend or a loved one and head to Discovery Green on April 13th. For more information, visit www.thehoustonartcarparade.com. This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio, a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and community do when it comes to taking care of all of our children. I am Claire Dutre and I am here with... Naomi Fletcher. Naomi Fletcher. How are you this morning? You know, I'm feeling pretty groovy. How about you? I am in such a good mood. The rain is gone. The sun is out. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. gone. Can we get that on the lineup? Growing Up in America's production of Children at Risk, the Voice of Texas's Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas youth. Each week, we fill these same 60 minutes with lively discussion, song, all on behalf of Children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for our children. Of course, we have regular segments. We have thumbs up, thumbs down, as always, and we have data of the day. What is our teaser number today, Naomi? It is 326,000. Let's see if I can read numbers today. 326,484. That's a lot of numbers. That's a big number. I think that's the biggest teaser number I've heard. I, I think I think we've had actually in the millions, but oh. this one is large. Maybe I'm not a regular listener. But what's your, what's your guess? Not like those thousands listening now. And if you have been listening and have a guess for this number, go ahead and call in. But Naomi, what is your guess for that number? The number of eggs hunted this past weekend. That would be fantastic. We got that data that quick. That is how, many, <laughs> how many eggs were hunted? Okay, Maybe but on a serious done. note, what could that number be? Hmm. I, I always tank these. My brain goes dead. I'm going to say that is the number of hours spent in a classroom in a semester. It's not the answer, but... And it, it's very large. Maybe the it's the of number of policies that have been put Six. before the legislators this session. That is a good guess, too. Well, I guess we can, we're going to hear in a bit about some of those policies, and we'll see if our expert, Jason Sabo, can answer that for us with Under the Dome. And then we're going to have Adrian Lloyd, Health Policy Manager for the Children's Defense Fund in Texas, Anthony Barati, the Director of Curriculum and Innovation for Healthy Futures of Texas, and then finally, Dr. Merritt Drury, Drury, Assistant Professor of Animal Science at Texas State University. So very packed, informative, fun show we have planned for you guys. What are we going to learn? about animals today that is going to be the last part of the show so everyone's going to have to hang around to the end i'm curious because naomi is excited to learn but we're not gonna we're not gonna preview too much but we're gonna go ahead and take it into our first segment So guess what, Claire? What? Uh, you know my little eight-month-old, eighteen-month-old daughter. Yes, the queen. You know, I think I'm doing a pretty good job with her nutrition and stuff, right? Like, I, feel I think like she you has are. a pretty healthy diet. So at home, you know, she only drinks milk and water. Like okay. we're champs. I'm okay. really proud of us because she only drinks milk no and juice? water. You know, every now and then she'll try to sip mine, but okay. she normally doesn't like it. I try to drink something that I know she wouldn't like, so that she doesn't get addicted to juice, right? Okay. But one day we were at a friend's house mm-hmm. and they had drinks everywhere. And she goes straight to the Capri Suns and she and knows she how to from. open it. <laughs> so she has been running away at night to go get Capri Suns from the They're neighbor. Not in my- <laughs> Where did she Naomi, I have a confession. I actually have been 
<laughs> Slipping Nyla Capri Suns. Oh, big mama, I knew you were up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> that leads us into our thumbs up, thumbs down. So we're talking about should kids drink soda? Should kids drink soda? So very obviously, you are a thumbs down. What is first defined as a kid besides a baby goat? You know, I think that a kid would probably be like 5 to 12. Okay, we have 0 to 12. That's definitely not a kid. But So but. you say an infant? Infant is an infant, and a toddler is a toddly waddly. Toddly waddly. So. so 5 to 12, should they drink soda? So are you going to restrain her? From a good, a good crisp McDonald's Diet Coke for the rest of her life? And definitely never going to give her Diet Coke. Okay. But a nice Sprite or a Fanta, you know, something a little caffeine free, I might consider it. I, I think so. When she turns like six, seven, eight. So what are, what are some reasons your thumbs down at the moment? Um, did you know I just, that carbonated drinks help dehydrate you quicker? I feel like I have heard that. So that's one of the reasons. Um, And then we did this experiment one time where we looked at how much sugar is actually in a can of soda. And when you do that, that's disgusting. I don't want to do that one. But (laughs) there's Diet Coke. And why are you so anti-Diet Coke? Please Um, educate me. I don't know. But I feel like some time long ago, before the dinosaurs became (laughs) extinct, somebody said something about there being some ingredient that's not healthy in diet soda so I just took that and ran with it and so diet means bad in my mind was that in a parable where did you see where did you see that before dinosaurs is it on the hieroglyphics clearly Claire and I have not seen enough of each other the past couple of weeks and so we just needed this time to catch up so and you're all enjoying it with us I I don't know so I had four brothers big family a lot to control Um, my mom did let us drink soda she was not very restrained I don't remember what age we also had a lot of cousins so when we would go to family gatherings there really was no super monitoring if some kids or some didn't um and yeah, and speaking of sugar, some juices have sugar. So also just monitoring that free choice. Milk and water. Milk and water until they're five. Yeah. <laughs> don't listen. But no, I, think, I, don't have a I mean, I think you should just like not with overdo it. But yeah. yeah, I mean, like don't And there's have a caffeine. Remember that. So if you don't want your kid bouncing off the walls. They're going to see a soda at some point. So they will. Like, They'll go to a birthday party. Do you want them to have party. one soda or They'll do you want do them something. to be like, oh my goodness, it's soda and have like three anytime they see them. And the the more you keep things super secretive in a way, the more they'll start searching for, why is that forbidden? And so just, right. just let them have a soda. So if we adjust this age from five to 12 instead of zero to 12, I believe I will give it a thumbs up. I am too. I will say suggest caffeine free for the sake of... Your well-being. Audience, we're not the only ones whose voices matter. We would love to hear from you today. So go ahead and give us a call and let us know if you're letting your children drink soda. All right. And we are going to move into the expert of experts with Under the Dome. We have Jason Sabo hey, hey with us. How are you, Jason? I'm great. How are you doing? We are good. We had some new music for you this time. No more Eye of the Tiger, it sounds like. And we, well, you know, apparently so. We've moved on, you <laughs> yeah. know, which, is a, which is a good thing for, for all of us to be doing about now, I think. I know, I know. We're, we're manifesting a calm remainder of the session. A calm, I successful. a good idea. Jason, yeah. are you at the Capitol today? Or are you taking the day off? No, I'm, I don't really, unfortunately, get to take the day off. I was at the Capitol all morning, but I, I did flee a few minutes ago to come and like actually work on a couple of bill drafts for children at risk, ironically enough. Awesome, awesome. So tell us what you're excited about, what you're hearing, getting a lot yes. of attention. The Crown Act just passed in the House. Well, there's a lot going on right now. So this is like a really fortuitous moment to be having this conversation because uh, see, I always tell people when you think about the way the legislative session functions, it's only 140 days and it's only every other year. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't happen very often. And within that 140 days, it's really divided into three sort of equal segments. 
the first third of the session is all about everybody going down there and having a big party. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of self-celebration, for lack of a better way of thinking of it. The second third of the session is when the big important bills get debated. The committee hearings happen, the governor's priorities, the lieutenant governor's priorities, the speaker's priorities, the top stuff, the big stuff, the budget all kind of moves through, especially on the House side, right? Even on the Senate side, there's a lot of legislation moving off the Senate floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then this last third of the session, which begins really right now, because we are two-thirds of the way through the session at this point, uh, that last third of the session is generally kind of dictated by, to be honest, fighting. And what we're already beginning to see is competing proposals around things like uh, the state budget and particularly around things like property taxes. A lot of people think that that fighting is going to be between Democrats and Republicans. A lot of people think the fighting might be between liberals and conservatives. But in reality, those conversations have already been settled in a way. The fighting right now is between different visions of kind of the Republican agenda, be it the House vision or the Senate vision. We've been paying a lot of attention to the budget. So are you hearing any things or seeing anything right now that is like a major budget modification request that may potentially yeah, get passed? Yeah, big, the big one that we're going to remember, like we think about the, the budget this session, we have to remember that the legislature came in with a, with a historic amount of money on the table. I don't really want to call it a surplus. Because in many ways, it wasn't really a surplus. It was funds that, for example, we got from the federal government during the pandemic that we could have used for state expenditures, but we chose to hold those dollars back and not supplement what we're doing, but kind of supplant it, which allows us to put you know some money in our little vest pocket, which is being used right now for within the budget that that is that leftover dollar surplus dollars you know federal dollars however you want to think of whatever your particular chosen definition is are overwhelmingly being used for things like property tax cuts and i think that a uh, the big debate now is how the property tax cuts are going to move forward is it going to be based upon appraisals like we're seeing on the senate side or is it going to be based around, you know, exemptions and, you know, going up to like a hundred thousand dollars exemption for people who are, uh, 60, I think 65 and up. So there are, there is a lot to play on the budget side. A lot of people hoped that there would be a big new increase in funding for public education or childcare or all these other things that, you know, people, you know, who do what we do are interested in seeing happen, particularly with regards when you have a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar surplus. But ultimately, it doesn't look like a lot of those, those new investments are going to be made. Oh, bummer. That's the bad news of the day. You know, that is the bad news of the session, I would think. I mean, it's not just the bad news of the session, but it's the bad news missed opportunity, right? Right. And I think that when you think about the impact that the state, you know, could have had with, you know, money sitting on the table that was in reality in excess to the total state budgets of a lot of states, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about it from those terms, you're just like, wow, we we missed a big opportunity here to do something substantive to, for example, not spend federal funds to a, uh, and instead not spend federal funds during the pandemic on things like one-term fixes or property tax, deferred savings to be used for property taxes later on. And we could have done what other states did, like even places like Alabama, which is not, you know, a liberal bastion exactly. They use their pandemic money within their child care subsidy system to queue up a larger state investment that's been happening more recently. So there are different ways of states to do this, and Texas is is choosing a kind of, in, in many ways, a very short-sighted budget. So let me ask you this, Jason. After ledge is over and all these bills get passed, about how long does it take for the residents of Texas to actually start feeling some of these changes? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've been doing this a really long time. And one thing that I think people need to kind of reconcile about this particular legislative session is, you know, normally there's one big combative piece of legislation, idea, bill, that that causes a lot of consternation during a session. 
uh, the bathroom bill. We remember the session that was defined by the bathroom bill. Yeah. Uh, or campus carry or sanctuary cities. Or if you look, or tort reform, you like you look back and every session has been kind of marked by, uh, not every session, but most sessions it seems, have been marked by this climactic fight around this big issue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's, what people are noting, one of the things that's different about this session that people are noting is those kinds of bills that do, to your point, substantively, you know, affect how people move through their days, uh, are passing. And they're not just passing one this session. There'll be like six of them mm. in one committee hearing on, in one committee across, but all four committees are meeting. So there'll be six of them in four different committees week, day after day, week after week. So the sheer volume of a very large social reform bills that we're seeing moving this session is very different. And I think that people will, on a very practical, on-the-ground level, when their libraries look different or go away, when things begin to, to change and people begin to, like, do th- do things that they not don't do things that they're now that have that been criminalized, but also don't do things because they're afraid of it being associated with something that has been criminalized in some way, like a drag show, for example. Uh, and I mean, there's the, the spillover unintended consequences, chilling effects of this stuff are, are real. Yeah. Thinking about some of the conversations. So I know and one big one, or maybe it's just personal interest is pub ed and K-12 space. And I know there's been a lot of conversation and sometimes headlines are more for buzz and, um, to get traction, but what is that space looking like? I know vouchers is a big conversation right now. Um, it feels right. more reactive in general. A lot of the K twelve policies and vaccinations, vaccinations, curriculum. I know book book bans are still very prevalent. So, what's that space and the pulse on pub ed? Well, the the big question there is the voucher, right? And yeah. what we're seeing now is vouchers have gotten a lot of traction. It really you know, flew through, not surprisingly, the Senate. Mm-hmm. And now the House is having a conversation, and within as as has happened the last several sessions within the House budget debate last week, an amendment was offered that basically said the state shall not spend money on vouchers, mm. and the amendment was approved. Mm. So, in many ways, the House sent a signal that no, we're not spending money on this stuff. Mm. But time out. Yeah. Today, yesterday. There has been a lot of conversation at the Capitol, you know, hearing, long hearing yesterday and the spillover effect of it today uh, within the House about different, you know, quasi-voucher proposals. So the one moment the House is saying, no, we're not spending money on this, the House Public Education Committee is debating budget, debating bills related to, to vouchers, meaning that it's possible that the state could do, could, you could always create you can always pass legislation that directs a state agency to do something. Mm-hmm. And normally agencies get money from the legislature to direct it to do something. The legislature can also tell an agency to redirect its current expenditures to do something, which means that your proposal ultimately doesn't cost anything, right? Yeah. Because it's just telling the agency to use available resources. So the voucher debate is, I think, still at play. You know, there, it's gotten much more complicated as to how you would find a revenue, a funding source, uh, a new funding source for it, perhaps. But I think if you begin to think about it from, okay, if we're not going to fund it, you're just going to do it in statute, there's a lot that can happen there. And the fact that there were so many bills related to this topic that were being heard yesterday in House Public Education Committee is, I think, indicative of where this conversation might be going. One last question before we let you go for today. Uh, the Crown Act, we just got word that it passed in the House. What is the next step for that bill? That's an exciting development, isn't it? And I think that that next step around that will be that it has to get over to the Senate. And that's going to be a trickier proposition for the Crown Act, I think. But I do think this might be the session that that bill actually gets across the finish line, which is really Ooh. extraordinary. And I think a huge testament to the fact that a lot of work is being done. I know there are going to be a lot of people at the Capitol tomorrow talking about this issue, and I hope that a, uh, there's a lot of momentum there because there's a lot that can be done. Jason, we appreciate the work that you do, and we thank you for taking time out to stop by and inform us a little bit more. Uh, 
good energy to you as you continue to fight the battle. Well, I appreciate it. I'll take any energy that I can get, but especially the good kind. (laughs) We'll send it your way, Jason. Have a good one. For the hell of it Addicted to betrayal But you're relevant You're terrified To look down we are moving into our next guest. We have Adrian Lloyd with us. She's the health policy manager of the Children's Defense Fund Texas. Adrian, we are so excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to get that Taylor Swift intro as well. <laughs> I know. I, I too enjoyed it. Her Houston tour is oh, she's on the brink next week. Very excited. But we have you here today to talk a little bit about Medicaid access, especially for pregnant people right now in Texas. So to start us off, before we get into some questions, can you just generally go over the work you do with Children's Defense Fund? Of course. So we at Children's Defense Fund um, work across policy and programs. We have some outreach and enrollment offices in East Texas and the Valley really helping families get enrolled in Medicaid or marketplace plans they're eligible for. And then we also work across three different policy issues um, here based in Austin, the capital, um, health coverage, which is what I work a lot on. And then, of course, these, these issues don't, you know, there's no single issue lives. And so I also work with my partners over working in immigration space and also youth civic um, engagement. So really just trying to make um, healthcare. Um, affordable for all Texans and for Texans who are eligible for different state programs, making that as easy to access um, and really removing those red tape and other barriers that can make it hard for eligible Texans to get those um, really important healthcare services. Yeah, that is awesome. And I apologize. I've been saying mental health. I did mean maternal. But in general, you do some good work just with health access in general. And all intersections need our help and support. So during this session and really just in conversations in general, when we look to health, we hear the words Medicaid, Medicaid expansion. Can you talk right Mm -hmm. now, kind of giving a landscape analysis of how Medicaid works currently for pregnant people in Texas? Sure. So I really want to emphasize that when we talk about strengthening maternal health in Texas, um, this is really strengthening healthcare access for low-wage Texans across their whole lifespan. Mm-hmm. So currently, um, to get Medicaid in Texas, um, you there's a couple different ways. It mostly covers children um, and some disabled um, adults. And some parents. Now, it's important to know that Medicaid covers about half of births in Texas, um, but that's because the eligibility to qualify for Medicaid when you're pregnant or CHIP um, is really much higher. It's a, a single person can make up to about $2,200 per month to get Medicaid when they're pregnant. However, um, the there's a lot of Texans who are not eligible for Medicaid until they become pregnant. Because if you are 19 to 65, if you're a low-wage Texan who, um, you know, makes, let's say you're a parent, you have to make less than $4,000 a year to be eligible for Medicaid um, when you're not pregnant. Um, And what I really want to emphasize is there's, let's talk about parents here. There are parents who make, more than $4,000 a year, which, you know, it's hard for some folks to survive on $4,000 a month, but $4,000 a year, and then if you make below the federal poverty level, and that can be a really wonky term, but um, for that same family of three, let's talk, you have to make at least $25,000 a year um, in order to get help for an affordable plan through the ACA healthcare.gov. Um, and so there's this big gap of Texans between $4,000 a year, but 25000 that's for that family of three, just to really picture it, who have no affordable health coverage options. Um, and we are really glad that the income eligibility is higher when Texans get pregnant. Um, but we know that to really strengthen maternal health, um, 
folks need coverage over the course of their whole lifespan. Um, and so that's why um, we are, we, I want to talk about maternal health coverage. Um, we really want to think about how to have coverage during pregnancy. That's covered. We are currently working to get longer Medicaid coverage um, postpartum. Right now in Texas, moms lose coverage um, 60 days after they give birth. Um, that's been on pause because of the pandemic rules around Medicaid, but those are now ending. And unfortunately, the six-month postpartum coverage that Texas was able to pass last session, um, for a variety of reasons, hasn't been implemented and approved by the federal government. So right now, moms are going to go back to 60 days losing their Medicaid postpartum. So we're working to get that to be a whole year after, but then... You know, after that year, we know that a lot of folks are going to fall in that gap. Remember, when they make more than four thousand for a family of three, less than about twenty-five, and so for births to be really healthy and safe, we know that moms need coverage um, over the course of their whole life. And without Medicaid expansion, that word you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, those moms are going to be without coverage for those big gaps. What impact are you? projecting would happen if you were able to secure health care coverage over a longer span of time, both before and so, after? Yeah. So, you know, I really want to emphasize that when you, you know, folks don't go to the doctor when they don't have coverage. Um, and when you um, are not able to go to the doctor, you're not able to identify some different, maybe acute or chronic conditions. Um, and then you're also, what, I've, what conditions you do have, you're not able to get those treated. And when we talk about moms specifically, um, births are a lot healthier and safer when those chronic conditions are known and named and managed long before pregnancy. But right now, um, you know, we, we have, let's, let's talk about um, someone who was on children's Medicaid. When they turned 19, they lost that. Let's imagine they're working, you know, going to school, working a part-time job, but they don't make enough for healthcare.gov plan. So they have just not been able to go to the doctor for multiple years. Let's say they're now 25 and are now pregnant. The first time that they are able to see a doctor might be once they are pregnant. I'll also highlight that because of the delay it takes in finding out when you get pregnant and the delay it takes in processing your application, it's unfortunately not immediate, Um, you might not be able to get pregnancy, um, you know, prenatal care until close to your second trimester. And, you know, there's two windows for making sure births are as healthy and safe as possible. One is long before pregnancy and the other is in those, you know, that first trimester. And without Medicaid expansion, um, a lot of moms who are, you know, don't have any coverage options are going to not have as healthy and safe births as they can. And we know that there's, um, you know, maternal health crisis here in Texas. And this is one um, piece that can really strengthen it. And I'll also say it's not just moms, you know, parents um, take care of kids. And we know that when parents have coverage, they are much more likely to um, make sure their kids have coverage and actually go to the doctor. So, there's a lot of different angles, but ultimately, we are just giving um, every Texan a pathway uh, for coverage, which doesn't exist right now, that they can afford. Can you describe a little bit more of how you guys are uh, forming this pathway? You know, what kinds, in addition to Medicaid expansion, like what kinds of innovations or services are you seeing as part of this opportunity to expand healthcare coverage? Definitely. So there are two big levers, and there's a lot of work in terms of service delivery that some amazing partners work on. And before any of that can happen, you need some baseline coverage, and that's what we work a lot on. So that's, like like you said, one one of those pieces is Medicaid expansion. That's very simple. 40 states, we're we're among the last 10 states who haven't taken this opportunity where the federal government will pay for 90% of it, um, it would actually bring a budget savings to Texas overall. 
Um, so that's one pathway, and that's just, you know, working to get the legislature to embrace Medicaid expansion. The other pathway is that 12 months postpartum. So those are both legislative um, pieces that we are working on. Um, both have a very fast track um, to, you know, that other states have done, and it's just kind of basically flipping that switch so that um, coverage is either available for folks who don't currently have any pathways or, um, you know, available longer for moms um, so they can make sure that they have, um, you know, they're they're healthy and okay before they might lose coverage again. But if we had Medicaid expansion, those moms who lose co- who lose their Medicaid after 12 months, if that is passed, would ultimately be able to go um, to the regular Medicaid program. Well, that brings us to the end of time for this segment today. We do look forward to hearing more from you and your team at our Motherhood Summit on April 27th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Zoom. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for calling in today. Thanks so much. Have a good one. It's that time. is debatably my favorite intro and it's to my favorite person Layla Layla how is I it I thought make- I was your favorite person Oh sorry you should not <laughs> This is hey, Layla. No, I'm kidding Hi Layla how's California Hi it's um cold and dreary actually Ooh, We took your son we apologize we'll give it back I know I know I'm paying all this rent for what <laughs> well, you can move to the sunny city of Houston, Texas, anytime you'd like. Where it flies. I, I sure can. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, Layla with our number of the day. Our number was 326 484. Number of eggs hunted over Easter weekend. Uh, I say hours in a day, school. Hours spent uh, in a year at school. My brain goes dead with date of the day, but. We're clueless, Layla. Can you help yeah, us out? <laughs> I did love the egg guess, and I, of course, I was instantly thinking about, you know, the cost of eggs lately and how that may have affected oh it. Oh, my no. gosh. <laughs> and if you have that dollar amount, it will be next week's data of the day. All the kids were forced oh to head. eat the eggs this year. They couldn't just play yeah. with them. <laughs> they saved those plastic eggs, eggs for next year. We are in a recession. <laughs> <laughs> what does the number actually mean? Um, so it is 326,484 children under the age of five in Harris County. Wow. That is a lot of children running around Harris County alone. And what does that number mean for child care? Well, um, unfortunately, um, 147,636 is the number of available child care seats. Um so, as we can see, that is less than not half. less than half, not enough. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit bleak. Yeah, and we're not getting any money put into I know, education. I know, this, year. this is just a bummer. You know, this episode has not been the hottest, right? No, no. I'm going to leave here singing and then. Ended crying. Um, But it's only just, again, hope for investment next time. Next time around, eventually. And the emphasis to invest. So who who gets the majority of these seats that are available? Is there any statistics that helps us understand kind of how these seats are allocated, distributed, made available? Yes, absolutely. Um, So... Many families rely on child care subsidies that are administrated through the Texas Workforce Commission um, to make child care affordable, affordable and to allow them to work and to participate in the economy. Um, but only families whose income is less than 85% of the state median income qualify for child care subsidies. And only 14% of eligible children under the age of six actually receive subsidized child care. So in Harris County, this means that there's only 31.4 child care seats available for every 100 children with working parents living in in low-income families. Um, So it's exceptionally harder for low-income families to find child care. Yeah, I know we have a few more statistics written down to share with the audience, but for every 100 working 
For 100 children with working parents, like you said, there are only 61.9 seats available. So, Naomi, you might have some insight on what is the process of even for any family acquiring a child care seat looks like. What are the wait lists? What is the accessibility alone? You know, I'm trying to get over this trauma, Claire. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I am. Um, It's it's hard, right? Because... Once you qualify for a subsidy, then you have that's a wait list, right? Right. Um, Specifically in Harris County, um, during the last two years, it's been six months to almost a year for parents to actually be notified that they have received a subsidy. So that's a year that their child hasn't been in a enriching environment or or their parents haven't been able to return to work right um so that's a wait then you have to find a child care center that actually has a spot available and can take your subsidy um which could be another six to 18 months um in my child care search i've had list as long as 24 months um, for that infant age, particularly Um, as you, as the child gets older, you know, that wait list shrinks a little bit, but I can't imagine knowing that I qualify for payment assistance and not being able to find a seat that's within a reasonable range of my homework commute or my homeschool commute, right? Because subsidy parents have to be either working or in school for a certain amount of hours. So you add stress, right? The the stress of being low income is already hard enough. The sh- the adjustments to having a child in your home, and then this exasperated period of getting your child into a program, and it, it minimizes your selectivity, right? Because you're really just looking for a seat at this point, right? Your your quest for quality no and agency, experience yeah. is is pretty much gone because of all of the weight involved. I know I talked to a parent that was in line at 4 a.m. for his child's child care. It was through his school district. Um, but it pretty much was first come, first serve whenever the yearly new list starts. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's usually you'd have to put them on the wait list before they're even born. Yeah. Nyla's on a wait list right now because she turns two in September. And I would like her to go to a more academically rich Challenge. environment. But she has to wait for the kids that are currently enrolled to register and then they'll open it up to new families and uh, our hopes of getting in are this big (laughs) no they're huge (laughs) we're manifesting Layla do you have any final data points to leave us with or urge if all of Texas legislators listening yeah I mean in case you're a person who really thinks in terms of numbers in the economy and developing whether you consider a prop your opinion on whether a problem is meaningful to you um, the lack of robust childcare infrastructure in Texas may be costing the state and Texas employers as much as $9.39 billion every year. Wow. We have that in our, our surplus I that know. we're not calling a surplus. So maybe we should return to that. So Texas, let's get on education. Layla, thank you so much for bringing us fun facts for the day. We hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Your thing. I hope they get more fun for next time. <laughs> Thank you, Layla. Moving on to our next guest, we have Anthony, is it Batori? Batori? Yes. (laughs) All right, I think I just said it the same twice, but I tried to do a different inflection. Anthony is the Director of Curriculum Innovation for Healthy Futures of Texas. Anthony, we're so excited that you're able to call in and talk to us a little bit, kind of carrying on an education theme, but about sex sex education. Did you just say that on the air? I am gassed in Texas. Um, We are so excited to hear some of the things. First, we want, as we give all guests an opportunity to do, is just an overview of the work um, your organization and yourself do in implementing sex ed. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Good afternoon. I'm excited to be here. Um, So Healthy Futures of Texas, our mission is to improve the well-being of young Texans through equitable access to sexual health education, uh, contraception and resources. And we do this through a lot of different avenues, but the, the primary two functions we do are education work and we do advocacy work. Um, and so in my department, curriculum and innovation, we do a lot of work around 
um, identifying and developing new curriculum opportunities. And also we do a lot with youth voice and youth advocacy and youth empowerment and trying to weave that into everything we do. Yeah, that is awesome. So thinking about um, curriculum innovation, we're joking, but it, it is hard, especially in a climate where when you start saying any of these terms, some people immediately shun and say that it shouldn't be in schools or should be articulated in certain ways. But it's important, especially to make sure that all students or just in general, young adults understand um, their bodies as well as healthy relationship buildings, interaction, relationship with others. And so what are some new curriculum ventures ahead of your organization and why are you pivoting to those types of projects? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And as I was preparing for today, I was like, should I Google what of these words I'm allowed to say? Like, what sex ed <laughs> words can I say on the radio? <laughs> but, KPFT uh, is open air. They are fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And, and you mentioned the, the kind of like tense environment. And I think it's always important to point out that for most school districts, for most families, for most communities, it, it's also kind of chill. Um, mm -hmm. We know from uh, research that we've done that as much as 70% of Texans support uh, sex ed that talks about contraception, that talks about um, healthy relationships, that's inclusive, that's affirming. Um, and you can find all that data. We have a, a report out called Big Challenges and Bright Opportunities. So I'll let the, the data headset over there. Um, but what we always try to do is uh, think about where young people are, what they need, what, mm -hmm. and then what the data is telling us. Um, we're very much a research-based organization, very much a data-based organization. And so we have kind of our, our standby curriculum um, that we do in school districts across the state called Big Decisions, which is if you're imagining sex ed, it's probably what you're imagining. It's, right. it's uh, the teacher in the classroom and you're getting instruction on, you know, this is what a sexually transmitted infection is. This is what um, contraception is. This is what abstinence is, et cetera. Um, but we're also really interested in other ways that young people are learning about sex and relationships. Um, I really loved the story at the top of the hour about the Capri Sun, because I feel like a lot of what I do is is helping people navigate Capri Suns. You know, like oh, yeah. parents are doing their best to prepare people for the world. But there's a lot of Capri Suns out here. And like, we got to tell them like, what to do with the Capri Sun um, because you know, I was funny that your daughter knew how to open it without, you know, ever having a secret before. Yeah. Um, Neighbor is definitely giving her a Capri Sun. <laughs> it's the teacher. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you know, we do everything we can to prepare our children for the world, um, but the world is just truly so full bad. of Capri Suns. Yeah. It's full of Capri Suns. And honestly, at some point in time, you might drink a Capri Sun and love it. Um, but yeah. it's it's our job to help empower parents in schools to, like, you know, make sure people know how to make healthy decisions about things like that. So we look at a lot of um, how we can reach young people who maybe aren't um, getting the resources that they need or looking at new opportunities. So speaking of new opportunities, one thing we're really interested right now in right now is puberty education, which mm -hmm. is, um, I call it the wild west of sex ed, because there's really just not a lot of good research yet. And, and unlike other types of sex ed, where we measure things like a young person's um, intent to use uh, birth control or intent to delay sex, we don't really have those measures yet for puberty, like intent to use deodorant or like intent to like put on uh, face lotion after washing your face, you know, so we're still trying to figure out how we can engage young people and use puberty education as, as that really critical stepping stone uh, for later education about um, sex and relationships. So based on your experience and what you're finding in the research, what is the target age to introduce sex ed for it to really be like preventative? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think um, it's, it's kind of the million dollar question in our field. Uh, it's also a question I think that gives a lot of people heartburn because um, if sex ed can mean so many different things to so many different people, but it starts, right. this ed kind of education starts with when you first tell uh, your child, like what the name of their genitals are, you know, you're doing sex ed at that point. It's, it's happening when you're helping your child to understand what a healthy friendship looks like, or like how to navigate bullying or um, explaining to your child what, what's happening with menstruation and how to manage um, one's menstrual health. Um, and it goes all the way up to topics that we might classically consider to be sex ed. So, you know, this is what a condom is. This is what abstinence is. Um, this is where you can get access to sexually transmitted infection testing. Um, so 
you know, for every young person, for every family, these are these milestones are going to happen at different points, and that's one way that we really want to support uh, families in Texas. So, so we do our classroom sex ed, but we also support um, parents through our program called Key Conversations and some other parent programs we have, where we talk with them about you know challenges they're facing and things they're nervous about, and help them to prepare to have the talk at whatever age they need to have the talk and whatever talk it is. So. Um, it's a great question, uh, but really, I think it's it's a really it's one of the questions that makes me excited because there's so many ways to answer it, and there's so many tools we can build to support families to answer that question. So next session, we're going to the legislators and telling them to implement sex ed in our early learning environments. Are you going <laughs> to join us? <laughs> All right, Anthony, we appreciated learning about your program. We hope to have you on future episodes so we can dig in just a little bit more. Thanks so much. Y'all have a great rest of your day. You too. You know what that means. We are deep in the heart of Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Down to our last segment for today's show. That means you're the lucky caller who gets to answer our fun five questions after we learn about your organization. And we have Dr. Merit Drury with us. Dr. Merit Drury, can you give us, first of all, is it Drury? Hi, yes, it's Drury. Drury, can you give us an introduction to what you're studying? You are from Texas State University. You're the assistant professor of animal science. So we have some interesting conversation. But like I said, if you could just start with an overview of what you do. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I am in the Department of Agricultural Sciences here at Texas State. My research focuses on enhancing the sustainability of beef cattle production. So how do we feed a growing population in an environmentally friendly manner, minimizing like natural resource inputs, but also providing um, economical and nutritious food products? That is awesome. So thinking of animal sciences or just nutrition, because we hear that a lot, um, why does protein specifically matter for growing children? Yeah, Um, I should say that, you know, my background is animal science and both human nutrition. Mm -hmm. And when we think about like protein we need to eat, um, we know that that depends on our age and like other physiological parameters. So if a woman's pregnant or producing milk or if you're, you know, exercising a lot and having a lot of muscle growth, um, your protein needs will change. And kids have a much greater protein requirement than like their adult counterparts as a percent of their body weight. Just because they're growing so rapidly, they need to eat that protein to support their their muscle growth. So I have a six and seven year old nephew, uh, six and seven year old nephews. Um, And when I look at what they need to eat, they need to eat much greater percent of protein in their diet than I do. I'm an early 30s woman and I'm, you know, done growing vertically, at least. I'm not getting any taller, but um, my nephews, their bodies are putting down significant amounts of muscle every day as they grow taller and stronger. So the protein part of their diet is hugely significant to to meet their body's requirements. There's a lot of families, you know, that are moving to more plant-based diets. Um, Are you seeing any discrepancies in the protein absorption or the protein quality um, from animals to plant-based protein sources? Yeah, um, I'm really glad you asked that because we know that different foods vary in protein quality. And a lot of times we just consider like how much protein is in the food. So we're like, quantity focused. But we also need to think about the quality of that protein. And so, yeah, like protein quality means what amino acids are there. Um, Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. And we humans require certain amino acids in our diet. They're essential amino acids. We need them because our bodies don't produce them in adequate quantities on, on its own. And if we don't consume the essential amino acids, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. 
if we go back to the kids, they could experience growth stunning. So when we're looking at, you know, how to feed our families, ideally we have protein from many sources, like including animal source foods like meat, egg, milk, dairy, but also plants, you know, legumes, nuts, and seeds. But knowing that children need so much protein, it's really difficult to ensure they meet their essential amino acid requirements through vegan or vegetarian plant-based diets. Because plants have lower quality protein than animal source foods do. They just aren't enriched in all of the essential amino acids at the, the right level. Thinking about, you always see, I'm thinking of a school poster specifically, but the plate, especially growing up, of how you should divide up your meal as a kid or a parent making food for their kid. How much percent of a kid's daily diet would you recommend that parents, or how much protein would you recommend that a parent ensures their child's intaking during development? Oh, you know, I wish I could give you that answer, but I really can't. And I I just shy away from that, just knowing, like, kids differ in terms of, yeah, age, um, you know, some genetic factors, how active they are or not. So really scared to answer that. But, you know, want to emphasize that whatever that quantity is determined to be, that we think about the amino acids that are there and... Mm -hmm. You know, you're probably wondering, I I know you all introduced me as an animal scientist, so I guess we're wondering how animals come back into this, and we we can have that conversation, too, if you want. Yeah, I would love to move into um, some animal conversations. Uh, So speaking specifically, I know we mentioned before cattle, and them as natural protein upcyclers, and then more animals as well, but can you speak about cattle and the protein upcycling? Yeah. Um, Upcycling, like, I think we all intuitively know what upcycling is. You know, we um, maybe watch HGTV, maybe you have like a Pinterest inspo board where you're going to turn this like old pallet into like a shoe rack or something, right? (laughs) DIYs. Yeah, like turning something with little value into um, something with a lot of value. So, as you said, like cattle are natural protein upcyclers. And this is because, you know, their digestive anatomy is different than ours. And so their stomachs are way different than ours. Cattle are known as ruminant animals. Um, And because of this, cattle can turn grass into beef and milk. So you and I, we don't want to, but we also can't go like eat grass in a field and grow adequately, right? Right. But... (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, But cattle can. And that's because of their digestive system. They're like we said, they're ruminant. They have microbes in one compartment of their stomach, which is the rumen. And these microbes do really magical work. They take the grass and the fiber and they turn that into energy. And because of this digestive system, they don't need high quality protein like we do to ensure they grow and perform well. They don't actually need to eat all of those essential amino acids. So they can take low-quality nutrient sources, not fit for human consumption like grass, like hay, and they can turn it into something that has all of the essential amino acids. And it's considered like high-quality protein that we want to eat, like beef. And so, yeah, this natural upcycling is just taking low-value nutrient sources and turning it into something that, you know, meets children's essential amino acid requirements really easily in small quantities. Awesome. Well, thanks for that lesson. We're going to go ahead and move into our fun five. And this is just an opportunity for us to get to know you a little bit more. Um, our okay. first question is, what was your favorite book to read or have read to you as a child? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh, my favorite book as a kid. Oh, I was such a bookworm. I was like, you know, that accelerated reader student. Um, I don't know. I really liked all those Hank the Cowdog books, but I don't think I had like, you know, a number one book that I just always went back to. Okay, awesome. That's fair. The second question is, what did you want to be growing up? Oh, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And actually, you know, I'm going to go on a little segue here, if that's okay. 
Um, I was a first-gen college student. Nobody in my family had completed a four-year degree. And we see that a lot with, um, you know, our, our current generations. And what that means is I knew I wanted to work with animals, but I didn't know how except to be a veterinarian. And so I hope, you know, being on this radio segment, I'm showing that there are animal science careers. You don't have to be a veterinarian. And um, this is a really, really, agriculture is a really great industry for anybody who's interested in animals and, you know, identifies as a scientist. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for that plug. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and let me ask you a quick follow-up question. About how many students do you guys see enrolling in animal science programs at TSU? Um, so at Texas State, we have, I'm in the Department of Agricultural Sciences. We have about 700 students. And within our department, we have a, constant, a, a major that is animal science. And I want to say about 450 to 500 students are in animal science in our department. Excellent. That's pretty good numbers. <laughs> that is. Oh, okay. yeah. Back to some questions about you. So in the movie, the Dr. Drury movie, what actor, actress would play you in the movie of your life? Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, I, I can't even say I don't know. Can I just like play myself? I don't think <laughs> you can. You can. Self-titled. You could direct, play, what is it? The one person, one man show? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, brain. Yeah. Be the director, I, I, script yeah. writer. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want anybody else. I couldn't, you know, like, I, I just am going to have to do it myself. I don't want them to immerse in, in my life. <laughs> That is perfect. Well, when you're not at the school teaching and you're not playing with animals, what is your go-to comfort TV show, movie, or book? Oh, um, so TV show, I watch a lot of forensic files, you know, Mm -hmm. um, my boyfriend and my husband, this is like a little morbid, but we're like, oh, let's wind down. We've had such a long day. Let's watch people murder each other, Right. And I know how horrible that sounds, but I really like forensics and I like the psychology of, you know, crime. So that's just how I wind down, I guess. No, that is fine. I'm a bones girl myself, but Forensic Files is also a good one. Well, that's our time for today. We've completed another episode of here on Growing Up in America, 90.1 FM, KPFT. We appreciate everyone tuning in. We look forward to seeing you next week. KPFT Artist Profile, Glenna Bell. Hey everybody, this is Glenna Bell. I'm here at the KPFT Studios. Beautiful brand new building here on Caroline. So excited to be here. So I've been asked to talk just for a second about what I love about KPFT. Not only that they play my music, but I'm a listener. I listen to KPFT every day. And there are just so many great shows. Shows from the past that I've always enjoyed. And... A bunch of new shows that are coming out for the future. So I hope everybody will tune in and continue to tune in and support our local community radio because it's true. There really is nothing else like it. This is only in Houston. KPFT 90.1 FM rocks.
To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family.